Good. We're, we're a little bit smaller in numbers than normal because uh, of the reading days going on this weekend, but uh, no worries. We're going to keep trucking in our sermon series on the book of 1 Corinthians called Messy Church, and we've arrived at 1 Corinthians 7. So uh, some of you know what that means, what's coming today, but I have the distinct pleasure of preaching on one of the um, potentially messiest topics, uh, and that is singleness. Um, so I am actually super pumped, uh, very excited to get to preach on this topic today. I think this is something that is criminally underpreached uh, in the church today, uh, and often when it is preached and discussed, I think we as Christians do a really poor job of talking about it the way that God wants us to talk about it. Um, and I'm excited because uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rob, I'm a deacon here at H2O. Uh, I'm 28 years old. I'm single, um, so I am not married. Uh, I'm not in a relationship. Um, most of my adult life, that's been the case. And not that that gives me automatic authority to be able to preach on this topic, but I am excited because um, just as I was preparing this, I, I really got to thinking, I, I really want to speak to the discontent singles today. So those of you who are not married are not in a relationship, but you want to be. Uh, and maybe you're even a little bit um, discouraged in your singleness. It feels like a burden or a problem for you. Um, and I feel like that's, that's honestly the place I've spent most of my life. Uh, and, and those are the people that I feel like get lied to the most. Uh, and so I'm hoping that being down here, I can speak some truth to you guys and hopefully provide some encouragement. Um, so yeah, by that, I definitely don't mean to exclude our marrieds in the church here. I don't mean to exclude are contented singles. I know you guys are out there. I've talked to some of you. I uh, definitely don't mean to exclude those of you in dating relationships, um, because we'll see. Um, <laughs> look, look, I'm statistically speaking, it's a maybe, so pay attention. Um, man, guys, I, I feel like I, I could probably speak for three hours on this topic. I managed to cut it down. We're going to keep it under one, but... Um, Man, I, I just really want to pray now and just invite God to come and be with us in this time because that's what's necessary. So, um, dear Holy Father, Lord, I just, um, man, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the life that you've given me to, to live and um, how that gets to be an encouragement uh, to other people, Lord. So I just pray that um, you'd be with us right now, Lord. I just confess that I feel inadequate uh, to give this message, God, and I, I know that that's because I am, Lord. And if, if you don't show up, and you don't speak, then nothing that I say or do really matters, Lord. So we just, we just invite you, we invite your spirit to be here. God, I trust that um, the people who need to hear what you have to say are here this morning, um, and that you're going to give me the words to speak, uh, to speak to them. So be with us, God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so you can go ahead and flip in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7. Um, so those of you who were here last week, Kyle preached on the passage before this, and he's talking, uh, Paul was correcting this attitude of kind of flippancy towards sexual passion and sexual indulgence. There were people saying, it's just an appetite. It's, it's like, you know, your hunger for food. If you're hungry, you eat something. If you have a desire for sex, you go get sex. It's just something that happens. And Paul was saying, no, like God actually cares a lot about your sexuality. He cares about the way that you act in that area. Um, and so we can't just be flippant towards it. And now he's going to address what was apparently a belief in the church of the time with some people that maybe some of you kind of grew up with something similar. And it's like, no, sex is, is so bad and it's so sinful. It's icky. We, we just shouldn't even have sex at all, right? And, and Paul's going to kind of combat that and say, no, like sex is part of God's plan. He designed it 
but it has to be in the right context, and that's in marriage. And then he uses that as a springboard to get into talking about marriage and singleness. Um, so we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Um, I also do want to say just, I, I think that this is honestly one of the more clear passages in the Bible. And I think maybe those of you who have heard it discussed before, um, we, we like to put a lot of interpretive spin on this because we don't like what it says. Um, but I honestly think Paul is speaking very frankly and clearly, and so I would challenge you just to listen to what's being said. Um, Verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. He's talking about his singleness. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Skip down to verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is the freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free is call, uh, when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in the view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. 
But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desires under control, and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet it is my judgment that she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Okay, so singles. I think when we hear that, there's some things in there that kind of rub us the wrong way, right? That kind of work against our sensibilities. So um, it is, to the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single. Uh, are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. He who refrains from marriage will do even better. I think most of us, when we hear something like this, our, our gut reaction is, slow your roll, Paul. I burn with passion. All right? I think, I think this gift you're speaking about is for someone else. Um, and and in, across the course of 10 years being in college ministry, this is what I have found is the general attitude towards singleness that, that most Christians have. It's, yeah, I guess, you know, God talks about singleness. Maybe singleness is for some people out there in the church, some weirdos like Paul, but not for me. Okay, put me in the desires are strong camp, all right? Um, and I think that that's what has led to this kind of widespread discontentment that we see in the church. Again, it's been my experience that most Christian singles are not really happy with the fact that they're single, and, and they're kind of searching constantly, and maybe even frustrated by the fact that they're not in a relationship. Um, and I think that this kind of is at odds with what we're reading here in the scriptures. It doesn't seem like that's the picture of the church that Paul is painting for us. So what's going on here? Um, I, I think this. I, I think that culture and media have drastically infiltrated the way that we view relationships. And that quite honestly, a lot of times it has more influence over how you think, you feel, and you act in this area than the word of God actually does. So when you feel discontentment about your singleness, that's not because necessarily God has put that desire there, but because you're buying into a cultural lie about where, what role that's supposed to play in your life. So I think, what, it, what is that lie? I think this is what you could call the big lie of culture surrounding relationships, and that's romantic relationships are the ultimate source of personal fulfillment, and that they're primarily about your individual happiness. So if you need evidence of this, um, you could go watch like any romantic comedy ever, um, or listen to country music, um, or get on Instagram for like 10 minutes, right? Okay, hashtag relationship goals. Um, in fact, I did this, and what I found was just too funny not to share. So we're going to go through a couple of these right now. Uh, okay, so here we go. Find someone who wants you as much as you want them. So this is why it's not selfish for you to seek your own individual happiness in a relationship, right? Because if you find the one, if you find the right person, then you're both going to be individually happy together, right? And so that's what it's about. Uh, you want to go to the next one? So, so being in a relationship is not about kissing, dates, or showing off. It's about being with the person who makes you happy. So it's right there, spot out. Relationships, they're about being happy. I found this one particularly ironic because it's on Instagram, uh, which is where people go to show off pictures of them kissing and dating to prove to everyone how happy they are, right? Um, this next one's great. I get jealous because I'm afraid someone is going to make you happier than I do. 
Uh, so this is a red flag. <laughs> and if anyone you're dating ever says this to you, you should be worried. Because I'm certain this is not the sign of a healthy relationship, right? Just because you have a, a good working definition of jealousy does not excuse the behavior. But th there it is. Like, it's, it's all about happiness. It's about being happy. And I'm scared that if you find someone who makes you happier, it's over. You're going to walk out on me. Uh, and then this last one is terrifying. <laughs> Look at his eyes. <laughs> I'm not sure if he's in love or like a murderer, but I, I want to be the person you're scared to lose because nothing says love like fear, you know? <laughs> but this, this is it. This is the, the cultural air that we breathe. This is, this is an Instagram account with half a million followers and just churning out this garbage every single day and people are eating it up. And it's like, oh, that's so adorable. No, that's psychotic. <laughs> That's not how this is supposed to be. But yet, I do not believe that we in the church have escaped these cultural lies. I think, honestly, they're just as prevalent as they are out in the rest of the world. So, um, you know, just as an example, I, I titled this sermon, Joy in Singleness. And I have a very specific reason for that and a very narrow definition of joy that we're going to get to in a bit. But, you know, if you just type that into Google, you will find no shortage of Christian blog posts and think pieces and YouTube videos explaining to Christian singles how they can find joy and happiness and contentment while they wait for God's perfect person to come into their life and how they can suffer through this time of being alone. And it's like, it's painted to us that the primary problem for a single Christian is the fact that they are single. Now, to be fair, there's also a blog post about, you know, marriage and some of the difficulties there and how to deal with that. But the implication is still that for singles, your main goal is to get into marriage so that you can have those problems because the problems of marriage are just somehow better than the problem of singleness. And yet, Paul says the exact opposite thing. He says, those who are married will have troubles, and I would spare you that. So there's a friction here between how we actually act and how Christian culture is and what God's word is actually saying. And, you know, lest you think that that's, that's something new or just this day and age, Paul's message was very countercultural at the time as well. So in the time that Paul was writing this, um, marriage was not so much about love or romance or, or happiness. Um, it was about creating a family because you were nothing without a family. There was no such thing as individual success. The whole point of life was to get married, start kicking out kids, and to create a legacy for yourself. Um, and so him to suggest to people that maybe they refrain from marrying their betrothed, this person their parents had arranged for them to be married, um, would be like saying, yeah, have no purpose in life. You know, don't do the one thing everybody expects you to do. Um, in fact, marriage was viewed in this way that a cultural problem at the time ended up being divorce because... Uh, if marriage is all about your social standing and creating the best family that you can have, well then, maybe we can just jump in and out of marriages like we do jobs, searching for the right one for us and what's going to be best for our personal benefit. Um, so you see things like uh, the Bible continually offers comfort to barren women, right? 
because a barren woman can't have kids. She can't produce a family. And so in that culture, she wouldn't have almost any value at all. Um, the same kind of thing is, is said to eunuchs, so men who are incapable of having children. Because if you were capable of having kids, everybody got married. But, you know, those who couldn't were to be pitied and had a lot of sorrow in their life and everything. Um, and so you would see at the time people divorcing barren women because they couldn't provide a family for them. So, like, why the heck am I even in this marriage? Um, you know, there was even cases of certain rabbis saying that you could leave your wife if you just found someone better. Like, if you could move up the social ladder by marrying someone else. Or, uh, if, if she ruined dinner too many times. Not a joke. That's in my study Bible. There were rabbis who wrote that, that that was acceptable. Uh, and so Paul, in saying, no, marriage is permanent. You stay in this. That was very countercultural. Jesus said the same thing. If you want to keep your finger in um, 1 Corinthians, we're going to flip to Matthew 19. So Jesus kind of takes on this, this problem of divorce head on when he's questioned about it. Matthew 19, starting in verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Okay, so there's, there's two things I see that he's saying. One is he's saying the cultural definition of marriage is wrong. It's not about you. It's not about you getting what you want or moving up the social ladder or oppressing your parents or your friends or whoever else. Marriage is God's design, okay, and it's in a specific context of commitment. So you commit to this, and you're committed. And if you marry someone who's barren, you're still committed. If you marry someone who burns dinner, get used to crispy dinners. Like, you're in this for life, okay? And the disciples even responded like, man, that's, you're setting the bar really high, Jesus. Maybe this isn't even worth getting into a marriage then. And he says, yeah, well, that's a legitimate option. And, and, and notice he points out, some people choose this. They make themselves unique for the kingdom of God. They choose a life without marriage for God's sake. Other people, it's just kind of forced upon them by life circumstance. He doesn't necessarily differentiate too much between those two groups. But that message applies to us today. The cultural narrative about marriage is wrong. If you can't accept marriage as God's design and what he wants, then you shouldn't be pursuing it for the wrong reasons. So we see a clear conflict between what Scripture says about marriage and what we generally think about it as. Jesus and Paul kind of have this view of, man, marriage is God's design. It's about commitment. It's about this relationship that he wants you to stick in forever, and it's not really bent to your conveniences. And singleness, that's a completely legitimate option, and maybe even better for you in the long run. 
But we don't feel this way in the church. And I think this is where the, the, the problem of discontentedness comes in, is the, the cultural lies and the scriptural truths are butting up against each other and causing friction. And, and I think that, man, we, we have just done singles such a disservice when this stuff comes up. Instead of preaching the truth of the scriptures to them and being really honest with them, we just paint up cultural lies in, in Christian language and give them back to them. And that's where you get these ideas of like, oh, man, God has got someone so special picked out for you. And when you meet this person, like, it's all going to make sense. It's like, I, I don't see that in what Paul's saying. L- let me read to you someone who just gets it. This is by a, an author named Paige Benton Brown. She says this. Warped theology is at the heart of attempts to explain singleness. As soon as you're satisfied with God alone, he'll bring someone special into your life as though God's blessings are ever earned by our contentment. You're too picky, as though God is frustrated by our fickle whims and needs broader parameters in which to work. As a single, you can commit yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's work, as though God requires emotional martyrs to do his work, of which marriage must be no part. Before you can marry someone wonderful, the Lord has to make you someone wonderful, as though God grants marriage as a second blessing to the satisfactorily sanctified. Accepting singleness, whether temporary or permanent, does not hinge on speculation about answers God has not given to our list of wise, but rather on the celebration of the life he has given. I am not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I am too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me because this is his best for me. Mic drop. That person gets it. She says, I refuse to buy into the cultural narrative and to to feel like my singleness has to be explained and that I deserve an explanation and that I'm going to use all my frustrations around that to question my view of God. Rather, I'm going to start with my view of God and what I know about him and let that speak into my relationship status. What do I know about God? He loves me. He is for my good. He has my best in store. And so whatever this is, it's a part of that. And so I'm not going to waste any time complaining or whining about it. I'm going to understand that this is part of his plan for me. The the question becomes, what is primary in your life? Grant gave a message a couple weeks ago from earlier in this, this book of 1 Corinthians. And he said, life is all about God. It's all about God. He's everything. He's the primary thing. And, and Paul is continuing this theme. Look at verses 29 through 31 there in 1 Corinthians 7. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. He's saying, guys, this stuff, all the stuff we care so much about, your relationships, your happiness, your sadness, your possessions, it's all passing away. In the light of eternity, it really doesn't matter that much. Life's all about God. Get your eyes off these fickle things in front of you that we waste so much time whining and complaining about and pledge your allegiance to something greater, something that's going to last. I think we have so many discontent singles who just, 
they're so desperate for answers to these particular questions. Why? Why is God doing this? What is he teaching me? Where is he going? Instead of asking, how is God using me right now? How can I, I pursue the things that he wants for me? And, and we don't do them any favors because we allow them to, to have this idolatry where they believe that relationships are the primary thing in life. Instead of steering their eyes away to that and on to God, we go, yeah, well, you know, you, you can serve the church so well now while you're single. You have such an opportunity just to, to, to really fall in love with Jesus right now, and that's such a good thing. And it's like singleness is some kind of consolation prize, right? And, and then instead of having singles who accept that and, and start really living for God, they, they treat it like some kind of relational purgatory where you're in the prison sentence of singleness and you just have to suffer well through it. And maybe if you figure out what you did wrong to deserve this, you can get time off for good behavior. And just, man, singles, we're wasting our life if that's how you feel. Absolutely wasting it. You know how I know that that's a bogus attitude to have? Because look at what Paul says to actual slaves. Verses 20 and 21. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. Okay, some of your, your versions are going to translate that word bondservant as slave. This was an indentured servant, somebody who was owned by another, another person and was in service to them. And he says, are you a bondservant? Are you a slave? Don't worry about it. Don't, don't make your life about that. Well, Paul, I, I just, I really think I'd be happier if I was free. Yeah, you probably would. Don't, don't make your life about that. If you can get free, go ahead, get free. But it's a stupid thing to waste your life thinking about. How could the call on Christian singles be anything less than that? The call on Christian singles is get after it. Live your life for God. He's not sorting people into categories and saying, well, singles have this call where they have so much extra free time, they can really serve God, and marrieds, they just get to be over here and happy because they're in a relationship. No, he's saying there are no distinctions. Slave, free, doesn't matter. Circumcised, uncircumcised, doesn't matter. Single, married, doesn't matter. Life's about God. So don't let anyone label you by your relationship status, by your age, anything, and prevent you from doing God's work right now. 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul writes this to Timothy, who would have been a single man at the time. He says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Get after it, Timothy. Don't let anyone put you in a box and say, too young, we're not going to listen to you. Set the example. Don't just fill your role. Lead. Step up. Do something amazing. Why? Not because you're young, in spite of the fact that you're young. Look, I, I feel like I could stand down here and just continue yelling for like another half hour because I, I really do feel like we've just done singles such a disservice by, by coddling them instead of just speaking biblical truth when it needs to be spoken. Um, but, but I do want to just take a minute and kind of change my tone and, and empathize a bit because I know there might be some of you out there who are like, man, it if I could just be content in my relationship status, that sounds great. Because the source of my anxieties and frustration is all due to, to being in this position. And if I could just not care about those things, that sounds wonderful. But I don't feel any more equipped to change how I think and feel about this than I do to, to end my singleness. So I don't really know what I'm supposed to do. 
And I want you to know that I understand. If you made me list like the top 10 most emotionally painful, dark, hard moments of my life, probably like six of them would have to do with rejection from women or breakups or failed relationships. And, and I found myself in those situations just thinking, man, this is because this is an idol to me. I know this is idolatry. I care too much about this. I'm hurting because I've placed too much value in this thing. And I'd love just to not be suffering and depressed as a result of this. But, but as I tried to suppress those feelings and get away from that, man, I just I honestly found a growing resentment and bitterness towards God, towards myself, towards my friends who I saw pairing off and getting married. I, I remember one time in particular, several years back, I'd gone through um, just a really hard season, and I was going to visit some friends. My brother was going to be there, and I was just really looking forward to seeing him because I just needed someone to vent to. And I was like, I'm just going to hang out with him, and I'm going to complain about all my girl problems, and it's not going to fix anything, but I'll just feel better. And as I'm driving up there, I get a text message from him, and he says, hey, we can, we can hang out for a while tonight, but then I actually got to leave town because I'm going to hang out with my fiancé. And I remember clear as day the thought coming into my head, you are nobody's priority. And in this season of pain and hurting, when you just want someone to care about you, no one does. And if someone had come up to me in that moment and said, but you can serve the church, I'd have smacked the teeth out of their mouth. But I get it. I understand how warm and comforting that lie is that says, you know what? Not today, but, but someone's coming. I'm going to meet somebody, and it's going to make everything better. And I'm going to feel like this was all worth it. I'm going to be somebody's priority finally. I'm going to feel loved. I'm going to feel special. That's coming. Just hold out hope for that. I get that feeling. But I, I want to reframe it for you a little bit. So this might feel like it rabbit trails for a little bit, but I promise we'll land the plane. Um, go back to the start of 1 Corinthians. Read verses, I'll just read 3 and 4, I guess. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. So he's talking about sex here. And, and he's speaking of it not as a receiving thing, which is generally how the world would view it, but as a giving thing, almost as an act of self-sacrifice. Um, and, and we as Christians would say that's because sex is a physical picture of what is happening at a spiritual and emotional level in the covenant of marriage. So the reason Jesus and Paul kind of harp on this idea of marriage is permanent, it's a commitment that you don't get out of even if circumstances change, is because within that commitment, there's freedom to fully give of yourself, to reveal all your secrets, all your insecurities. So emotionally, you don't hold things back, you tell them everything. And physically, you don't hold anything back, you give everything to your spouse. There's no depriving or keeping things to yourself, the two become one flesh. 
Um, Tim Keller said it this way. He said, you cannot have true intimacy without a loss of independence. And so what happens in marriage is you sacrifice your independence. You sacrifice your, your complete autonomy and individuality, and you join yourself to another person so that you can experience true intimacy and connection. And I know that as I describe that, that some of you singles, your heart just aches. And you're like, I want that. That's what I've been waiting for. That's what I'm looking for. I just want to feel that with somebody. I want to give up being alone and and find a connection with another person. And, and, And what is so scary about hearing a message that says you just need to be content in singleness is it feels like I'm telling you, kill that. That desire, that, that longing, just ignore it. Not going to happen. Give up. Repress it as much as you can. And, and I want to say something different. I want to say I, I think that desire is good and beautiful and God-given, but it needs to be seen in the right light. So um, C.S. Lewis, he was a great Christian thinker, and he wrote, he wrote a book called Surprised by Joy. And in it, he, um, he gives one of the most interesting definitions of joy I've ever heard. I think most people would think of joy as similar to happiness. Um, a lot of, it's very popular in Christian culture to say, well, it's different than happiness. It's more like satisfaction. You can be sad but still joyful. There's some truth to that. Um, but he actually describes it not as satisfaction but as dissatisfaction. He says this. I'll read you some quotes. Joy is an unsatisfied desire which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. Joy is distinct not only from pleasure in general, but even from aesthetic pleasure. It must have the stab, the pang, the inconsolable longing. All joy reminds. It is never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. It is a byproduct Its very existence presupposes that you desire not it, but something other and outer. So it's this longing. It's a desire for something else that is going to satisfy you. And and he says that joy, joy can sometimes point towards things, but, but nothing here on earth is ever going to fulfill that desire. You could get it if it says, go get sex, go get money, go get power, get affirmation. That's what I want. That's what will satisfy me. You can get those things, but you'll find that your joy is unfulfilled and that you still have joy that just points for other things. And, and his conclusion is that joy, this deep longing, it, it's just a signpost that points towards God. Um, that if nothing in this world can really satisfy us, that's because we weren't meant to be satisfied by something that's in this world. So um, maybe just, I want to share something just to kind of maybe explain this idea a little bit better. So can you put that first picture up? Um, This is the most beautiful place in the world, Um, and this picture just does not do it justice at all. This is the lock in Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. It's a lake that's like 10,000 feet in elevation or something like that. It's nestled in a canyon in between mountains. Um, that patch of white up there in the, uh, the upper right is Andrews Glacier. That's like a mile away, and we actually hiked down that and almost died uh, before I took this picture. Um, and then up to the left, there's a, another hike you can do to go up to a place called Sky Pond. So can you go to the second picture? Just give you a sense of how big this is. That tiny pond in the middle there, that's that giant lake we were just looking at. And 
this picture like kind of annoys me because I don't know if you can see there's a rainbow there. Um, this is like probably, I'm not even going to say top three. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And, and I'll probably go my whole life and never see. This is a rainbow over this canyon. I could see where it landed in the canyon in both places where we were going to go hike. Um, and it's just overwhelming amounts of beauty. So go back to the, the first one. So I could, I could come out to this rock outcropping on this lake. I could sit there for, for 12 consecutive hours. I could not speak to anybody, say nothing, just sit there and breathe the Colorado air and, and stare at the mountains around me. And I don't think a second of that time would be wasted. And I, I know not everybody connects with nature the way that I do, but maybe you've had moments like this where you just sit here and there's just a sense of awe and it's not even attached to anything. It's just this feeling of like your problems fall out of the back of your mind and everything that you worry about is gone. And it just says, something's out there. <laughs> it's what C.S. Lewis would call a stab of joy. Some, some, something's out there that makes sense of life. If I could just find it, if I could just get my hands on it, everything would be good. It's out there. Don't give up. It's out there. And, you know, we as Christians, we understand that that thing is God. That thing is a relationship with our true Father. And so when we sense that joy, those stabs of joy, that's the thing that it was meant for. Well, you know, I, I come back from this trip, and it takes like three days for life to get hard again, and I got to go back to work, and I have problems again, and like your joy just kind of fades away, and you stop believing that there's all satisfying whatever out there. But then when I, when I look at this picture, even though it's just the shade of, of the beauty that's actually there, like I'm hit with stabs of joy again. But the funny thing is, those stabs of joy say, oh, Colorado, I want to go back to Colorado. Life was better there. I was happy. I didn't have to go to work. I just want to go back. So I, I think there's two ways that I can respond to that feeling, okay? One is to go, yep, life's about Colorado. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to cash out my 401k, move into Estes Park, and I'm just going to go sit in the mountains all day, every day. But what's waiting for me there? I'm going to get out on this rock, and I'm going to go, man, there's something out there. There's something. It's not this, but there's something. So really, I'm, I'm not any further along in the process than I was right now. Or I can say, all joy is a signpost to God. And this signpost is just pointing out another signpost. And if I get there, it's going to point me somewhere else. So maybe right now I can say, man, Colorado, whew, it's awesome. Love it. I'm so happy when I'm there. I hope I get to go back. I hope I get to live there at some point in my life. It's great. But if I never get to go back, I can still go towards God. That's the, the true source of my longing. That's where true satisfaction is. Maybe I don't even get it here on this earth. Maybe it's when I die and go to glory. But while I'm here, I can make my life about pursuing where I know true satisfaction lies, even though my heart tells me different things. So the, the fear that comes along with a message of contentment and singleness 
is that I'm trying to steal your joy. I'm not. I want you to have joy. God wants you to have joy in the fullest. Encourage that joy. Encourage those longings. But understand where they ultimately point. Are you lonely? Are you dissatisfied? Yeah. You're not of this world. Your true home is in heaven with your Father. So make your life about coming as close to that while you're here as you can. So um, just so that you're not completely taking my word for it, I want to read a, a brief passage out of Isaiah. This is in Isaiah 56. Starting in verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. There's that word better again. So the, the promise that God is issuing here, it's not, oh, singleness is a consolation prize. Yeah, you'd rather be married, but there's some cool things you can do while you're single. No, the promise is marriage was never the thing that was meant to satisfy you anyway. If you get to marry, man, I, I still hope I'm married at some point. That's still a desire that I have. I'm not completely over those feelings. If I do, the best thing that marriage can be is another signpost to God. And the best thing that intimacy can fuel in my heart is, oh man, there's an intimacy I'm supposed to have with Jesus that's so much better than this could ever be. So if you want to surrender your independence to something, do that to God. So I, I'm going to wrap up here with just a couple quick things. One, I, I understand that nobody changes overnight in this area. I'm it's still very much a work in progress in this. Um, but I, I think there's some things that you can do to, to help push you along. So just three quick things I'd say is one is take an honest stock of what you believe. Um, all discontentment, all sorrow, all frustration, at the heart of that, there's some kind of lie that you're believing uh, about you, about God, about something else. Um, like for me, just personally, I, I realized that I believed that relationships were gifts that God gave to people that he was pleased with. And so therefore, my singleness was an indictment on God's view of me. And so the reason that I was so hurt was not because women were rejecting me, but because I felt like God was rejecting me. And man, when I, when I realized that, I was like, oh, gosh, like, I actually believe this. I wouldn't say I believe this. This is how I act. This is how I, I process these emotions. Um, be honest with where you're at and how you feel. There's something down there that, that might be tripping you up more than you think. Second thing, speak truth over lies. Man, there's just so many lies that are so easy to believe when you're single that you are alone, you are unloved, you are unvaluable, that your life has no purpose, and those things are not true. And I don't think any of you would say those things are not true, but you're probably acting as if they are. And when you feel that stuff, fight it with truth, man. God loves me. God has a purpose for me right where I'm at. He has my best in mind. 
And lastly, just act in faith. I mean, your attitudes are not always going to line up with what God has for you, but you can still take God on his promise. He says, I've got something better if you seek me. See if he's telling the truth. Push towards him. Um, Marrieds in the room, I know there's a few of you. I, I just have a little bit of advice. Many of you, even if you're single now, will be married at some point, so this could apply to you as well. Be extremely careful in the words of counsel that you speak to, to hurting singles. I, I know how tempting it is to try and affirm someone by just telling them how wonderful they are and how happy they're going to make somebody someday. And, and just from experience, those words do more damage than they do good because they reinforce this cultural lie that you are your relationship status. And nobody sees it now, but when that changes, you'll understand. Um, be careful with advice that you give as well, just because it, it can very easily imply that you did something right to end up married, and therefore they, by extension, are doing something wrong. And that's probably the last thing a hurting single wants to hear. So, so what should you say? Man, I, I would say steer away from reinforcing their hope in a future relationship. Speak the truth in love. Hey, this, this sucks, and I'm going to mourn with you, but we're not going to mourn too much because life isn't about mourning. And you've got a purpose, and you've got a mission, and you are so loved by God right now in this moment, and that matters more than any relationship ever will. So get your eyes off of this. I know it hurts. Get your eyes off of it. There's more hope in a different direction. And then secondly, just, just make an effort to care and love faithful singles. Um, I think you guys do a pretty good job of this just because college students are really terrible at self-care to begin with, but... Um, <laughs> You know, our church has a growing population of older singles, and, you know, consider the fact that those people have all the same life responsibilities. They got to buy their groceries, cook their food, go to work, make their bed, clean their room, pay their taxes, Um, and it's not so much that they don't have somebody to help them with those things, but there's less accountability in singleness, and so it can become very easy to focus on your external obligations and kind of neglect the self-care, and you know, it's like if I'm really have a bad day and I'm hurting and broken and really just want someone to talk to, it's very easy to just like lock myself in my room and be like, I'll just ride this storm out. Um, so man, invite those people into your home. Ask them how they're doing. Tell them that you love them. Cook a meal for them. Uh, I think that goes a really long way into showing how much you care. So, and I, I didn't really like write a conclusion to this or anything just because it, there's so many things that, that I could say and can be said, but I feel like maybe just the best is to say like, like life is getting better, guys. The older I get, the longer I go as a single, the better my life is. It has nothing to do with my singleness. And, and, and I know just, I mean, I can picture 20-year-old Rob sitting there in an audience hearing this message and my exact thoughts would be, you did something wrong, buddy. If you're 28 and single, there was a mistake somewhere along the way, and I'm not going to do that. And, and maybe there's somebody out there who feels like that towards me right now. And first of all, I don't care what you think. But <laughs> second of all, I, I want your joy. And, and the only regret I have in my life in terms of relationships is that I waited so long to stop believing that I needed one to be happy. And, and so, again, I want to be married, but if I'm single till I die, 
I honestly believe if that's God's best for me, bring it on. What could I possibly want except God's best for me? Is it going to be hard? Sure. Lots of things in life are hard. Would I be happier married? I'd be happier if I had a Ferrari. <laughs> life is not about your happiness. If God's best is in singleness, I welcome it with open arms. And I encourage you to do the same. Uh, pray with me. And God. God, I just pray for the hearts of the people, Lord. I, <laughs> I know I probably stepped on some toes today, God, and challenged some idols. Um, but I believe that, man, that's part of your plan, God, that, that you want our best. And our best does not come from accepting a, a substitute or accepting something less than the fullness that you have for us, God. So break our hearts of our idols, Lord. Help us to, to cherish you and love you above all else and let the longings of our heart point towards the relationship that you've intended for us to have, God. We're not gonna do that perfectly and that's why there's grace. That's why Jesus came because you know that we're an imperfect people, God, and we're selfish and we're scared and we want our own way, God. But like a patient and loving father, God, you're willing to slowly correct us and bring us through hardship because you've got something better. Let us cling to that promise, God. Let us hold fast to joy and never suppress it, God, but welcome the longings of our heart and say, yes, there is ultimate satisfaction out there. There is beauty and there is meaning in life. And it's found in your arms. Amen.